When your weed growing empire starts to expand, you'll need to choose your employees carefully. Things can get out of hand quickly and you need to manage your response. Tonight, I'm going to tell you about an operation in how not to do it. Hi, this is your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. So what happens when you grow a bit of pot for yourself and a few mates? Well, you might find that it was pretty easy and try to grow a bit more next time. Then you realise that you need to buy a bit more equipment and up the scale a bit more. Maybe then you find that you can grow a little bit more than you need and can make a little bit of money on the side as well. Things seem to be going well and so your little harmless hobby gets a little bit bigger again. Then as you start becoming the expert pot grower and your bedroom and garage are now just not big enough, you may want to go full-on and industrial. So, this story today is a story on how things can get big, out of hand, and if you don't make the right decisions, people can die and others will go to jail. I'll start at the beginning. This all started late 2013. Most of this has come from court records rather than media accounts. Let's get to know the people involved in this story. Philip John Holder was born 1961 and was aged 52. And Donald John Cameron, born in 1952 and was aged 61. Holder was growing some pot in a spare bedroom. Actually, he was growing seedlings to the point of maturity where they could be transported to a larger growing space. Holder and Cameron decided to lease a property at Angus Road Schofields, about 30 miles or 50 kilometres drive from Sydney. It's a rural area that has large blocks of land with usually a house and some kind of shed out the back. So in August 2013, the residence they had placed a deposit on to lease had a small house and a large steel shed at the rear that was surrounded by a large colourbond sheet metal fence. This fence helped to restrict access to the shed as well as helped to conceal it. The fence separated the house from the shed. This was ideal for what they wanted to use it for. Grow some weed on an industrial scale. Cameron had several convictions and had done time previously for growing weed on a largish scale, so he was the brains behind the operation. Come the 1st of, De- uh, 1st of September 2013, they were ready to move in and set up the operation. To help them set it up, they employed the services of Sean Stephen Zanker, who was born in 1989 and was aged 24. Zanka was then using and had for some time used cannabis extensively. He lived at Garokan on the central coast in housing commission accommodation 
and he was supported by a Commonwealth Disability Benefit. In 2013, a neighbour at Garokan introduced Sanka to Holder, who offered him work growing cannabis hydroponically. Holder lived at Marylands, and just a bit about Zanka, he was born to a 16-year-old drug and alcohol-abusing mother, and he never met his father. A stepfather he had would constantly abuse him. At age eight, he became a ward of the state and never really got an education. Later in his teens, he would smoke weed every day and get into trouble having been charged with assault and drugs charges, but most of these seem very minor, with no custodial sentences given. I will put a photo up of this guy on my Instagram later. And when you see him, he is so short. So, with Holder at Marylands preparing the first crop of seedlings, By the way, Marylands is about 25 minutes drive from the Schofield's property. Cameron and Zanka went about setting up the grow room. This involved assembling the grow tables, mounting the lights, running irrigation lines for the hydroponic solution, installing ventilation equipment such as fans and ducting, plus all the electrical points required to run the show. Once the place was ready to roll, the seedlings from Holder's house were moved in and the first crop was underway. Now, to get a continuous harvest, while plants were maturing, cuttings would be cloned off sometimes a mother plant or existing plants to maintain the sex, which needs to be female, and the quality that needs to be high. I get it. So, the cuttings would be ready to move into the main grow room as the existing plants were ready to harvest. Of course, the bigger the enterprise, the more work. Trimming, changing solutions and general tasks need to be done. This meant that Zanka, who was not a principal in the operation, was employed to help out. Until the first harvest he was not paid any actual dollars. Rather, he was allowed to stay with Holder rent-free and was fed. He also got to smoke the copious amounts of resin that accumulated on the scissors he used to trim the crop. After the first crop, he was paid $500 per week. The next character in the story is Stanley Robert Forward. He was born in 1993 and was aged 21. Forward was introduced to Cameron by his dealer in late 2013. As Holder and Cameron needed more labour at the grow site, they agreed to employ Forward for a couple of days a week at $200 a day. His duties were to help set up the operation and help with the trimming of the harvested product. The trimming involves trimming of the excess leaves from the buds. That will leave you with nice tight heads as I'm sure you've seen on TV or somewhere else. Eventually, Forward would become trusted enough to go with Cameron on one of his delivery trips to Port Macquarie 
where he would meet the buyer of the crop so he could do drop-offs in the future. So now we have Cameron and Holder, the head honchos, with Zanka and Forward employed as workers. Already there must have been security concerns with four people now involved. Okay, in March 2014, to expand the operation further, Holder brought in a guy named David Ian Wilkinson. He was born in 1946 and was aged 67. He did some construction work and some crop management and harvesting. Wilkinson had building skills and helped construct a second upper level of cultivation rooms within the shed. He was provided with accommodation in the on-site residence and he was paid $500 per week. So once they'd built a second level in the shed, this meant that the amount of work practically doubled. With Zanka, Ford and Wilkinson already doing the bulk of the work, Holder introduced Jacob Munro, who was born in 1990 and was aged 23. It was now May 2014. Deliveries to the Port Macquarie buyer was periodic and consisted of around 8 to 10 pounds of weed at a time. Now there are five people involved in what is getting to be a pretty huge operation. But there's trouble brewing at the Schofields residence where Zanka, Wilkinson and Munro are living. In June uh, 2014, Zanka and Munro are getting on each other's nerves. These little arguments escalated into full-blown shouting matches over the next few weeks. Eventually, things got to the stage where Munro grabbed Zanka by the throat and pushed him through the thin makeshift wall of the upstairs part of the growing room and held him over the edge. Remember, Zanka is such a little dude and wasn't able to fight off Munro. Cameron intervened and made Zanka and Munro work in different parts of the operation. Obviously, with these two guys living and working together, something had to be done to prevent further issues. At a normal place of work, you would probably call HR, but when you're growing pot illegally, you usually don't have a HR department. So Cameron approached Holder who had introduced Munro to the operation and told him to get rid of Munro. I guess you can see the problem here. Munro seems to be a bit of a loose cannon. You can't just tap him on the shoulder and tell him to piss off like they can do out in the real world. He knows too much. He might, as Cameron was to say, bring heat to the operation. Cameron also was worried that if Munro was fired, he might get his mates to come rob the place. There was also the possibility that the cops would find out about the operation from Munro's loose talk. I don't know about you, my island friends, but if you are worried this guy has a loose mouth, what the fuck have you got him working in the operation in the first place? 
there's a pretty good possibility he's already told his girlfriend or mates about his new job. But then again, Cameron has been busted a few, busted a few times growing weed. According to court records, the dates of his prior drug offences and the penalties he's received are as follows. February 1996, age 44, cultivate cannabis. October 2002, age 50, cultivate cannabis. January 2003, age 50, cultivate cannabis. July 2009, age 57, cultivate cultivate cannabis and supplying. All convictions except the first, Cameron served custodial sentences. So we have Cameron voicing his concerns to Forward, Zanka and Wilkinson in early July 2014. Holder, who'd introduced Munro to the operation, rented a caravan about 25 minutes drive from the Angus Road operation for him and Cameron urged Holder to pay him money to stay away and keep his mouth shut. Okay, so at this point, what do you do with Munro? Just keep him in a caravan forever and pay him to shut the fuck up? This is a crucial point in the story. Decisions made now will be so important so they really need to be thought through in detail. At this stage, there are two conflicting accounts on what happened. The first is that Zanka and Forward approached Cameron and told him they were, they were willing to kill Munro. They made this offer several times and at one stage, Forward asked Cameron, Do you mind if it's messy? And Cameron replied that he did not mind. Another account is from Forward. Forward says it was Cameron that initiated the plan to kill Munro and that Cameron directed him and Zanka to do it. In this account, Forward tries to limit his involvement by saying he didn't really think Cameron was serious about killing Munro and he only went along with it so he would not be isolated from the group and maybe he himself might be silenced as well. Whichever account is true, there was enough talk going on that Wilkinson was now aware of the plan by either overhearing it or being directly told. At the same time as the talk of killing Munro was happening, Holder had plans to reintroduce Munro to the operation, thinking the tension in the group had died down. Obviously, Holder... He was not being told of the plan to murder Munro, even though he was a principal in the operation with Cameron. You can see that this whole situation is getting chaotic. Okay, Saturday 12th of July 2014. Cameron, Forward and Zanka decide that the next day they would drive to a location near Bulladeela which Cameron had identified as a good place to bury a body. Bulladeela is about two and a half to three hours drive 
northeast from the Schofields Grow Shed. Early Sunday the 13th of July, Cameron drove in his own car to a hardware store at Rouse Hill and purchased two spades, a mannequin and three pairs of gloves. He then drove to Schofields and collected Zanka, as per the arrangement he had made with him by phone the night before. Cameron drove with Zanka as passenger north to Garokan on Tuggera Lake. Therefore would join them and they continued towards Bulladila. During the drive north, the three discussed the location which Cameron had identified on the map as a suitable burial place. After passing through Bulladila Township, Cameron drove onto an unsealed road and stopped at a point along it where he thought the grave might be dug. The three men explored surrounding locations for about 20 minutes, agreed upon a place and proceeded to dig. At the end of this task, Forward lay down in the grave briefly to ensure that it was of sufficient capacity to hold Jacob Munro's body. The open grave was then covered with branches and the three men returned to Sydney. Wilkinson was not involved in any of the grave digging road trip, but he heard Cameron, Zanka and Forward joking about it the following week. Munro had not been back to the growing shed since he was told to stay at the caravan park. But on the 21st of July, Holder asked Munro to come back to work the next day. On the morning of the 22nd, Cameron drove to the caravan park to pick up Munro and drive into the grow room to start work again. As Munro started trimming buds in the trimming room, he was soon to be joined by Wilkinson, Forward and Cameron. Cameron then got up and left the room, followed shortly after by Forward, who picked up a knife he had brought to the room the day before for the purpose of killing Munro. Wilkinson's account of what happened next is as follows and it's taken directly from court records. Wilkinson says, I'd not been expecting the attack. Ford ran back into the trimming room, straight up to Munro, and delivered a punching or thrusting knife blow to his neck. Forward then ran out of, ran out of the room into the adjoining part of the shed. Munro, although he must have been severely wounded, got up from his chair and ran out of the trimming room after forward. I infer that he was trying to escape from the shed. Forward seized him by his clothes and delivered more knife blows. They went to the floor, wrestling, with Munro trying to gain control of the knife. Cameron was present in this part of the shed while the struggle was going on. Munro then collapsed onto a lounge chair which was located in the area where the attack by forward upon Munro was continuing. Cameron applied a taser to his head and delivered a burst of electric current. 
forward, grasped the handle of the knife in both hands and plunged it into Jacob Munro's upper body with great force as Munro was slumped on the couch. Munro did not move again. After this, Forward removed his own clothing and showered in a bathroom located within the shed. He changed into clean clothing and placed that which had been blood splattered during the attack in a black plastic bag for destruction later. Forward had sustained a deep cut to his right thumb and a laceration to the knuckle on his left hand whilst wielding the knife against Munro. These injuries were taped up in a temporary fashion. Cameron, Zanka and Wilkinson lifted Munro's body onto some plastic sheet, wrapped the body up and placed it in the boot of Cameron's car. The floor of the shed where Munro had been standing when he was stabbed was covered in blood. Zanka applied bleach to the bloodstained surface and Cameron mopped up after him. Zanka and Cameron went through the pockets of Munro and removed his phones and wallet. The phones were turned off so that their location could not be traced. They were chucked in the rubbish bins away from the Schofield shed. The wallet was chucked out as well. Within half an hour to an hour after Munro's body had been loaded into the boot of Cameron's car, he drove it north to the prepared gravesite near Bulladeela. At Cameron's request, Wilkinson accompanied him as a passenger. Forward drove toward the site in his own car with Zanka. By arrangement between Cameron and Forward, the latter drove ahead in case there should be any random breath-testing patrols along the highway. The offenders agreed that if there were such patrols, there was a better chance of Cameron not being stopped and having his car searched if forward preceded him. During the journey north, Cameron stopped at a hardware store to purchase two bags of hydrated lime. Upon arrival at Bulladeela, Forward parked his vehicle. He and Zanka then rode in Cameron's car for the last part of the journey to the burial location. Upon arrival there, the covering of branches was taken off the grave. Wilkinson assisted Cameron to carry the body to the grave. Lime was placed in the bottom of the grave and the body was lowered in and more lime was spread over the top. The grave was then backfilled by Cameron and Zanka. It was about 900 millimetres deep, that's about 3 feet, and approximately 15 metres from the edge of the unsealed road. Forward did not take part in the burial, but remained at the, in the motor vehicle. His hand injuries prevented him from helping and he said that he was shaken by what had taken place and felt unable to assist with the body. Wilkinson stood near the grave and observed the activities of Cameron and Zanka. 
the black plastic sheeting in which the body had been wrapped and a bag of forwards clothing were burnt a few hundred metres from the burial site. All four men returned to Buller Dealer in Cameron's motor vehicle and whilst they were together, they agreed that they would tell Holder and anyone else who might ask that Jacob Munro had never turned up for work at the shed that day. At Buller Dealer, Forward returned to his own car and with Zanka as passenger, they drove to Wyong Hospital where Forward obtained treatment for the cuts to his hands. Cameron drove Wilkinson back to Schofields. Consistently with their plan, Cameron sent text messages to Holder either on the Tuesday evening or within subsequent days stating that Munro had not arrived at work. Zanka returned to work at the shed the next day. Well, let's recap on this so I don't, I'm not losing you. So, Cameron and Holder set up an elaborate weed growing operation in Schofields. They need to employ people to help and so Zanka, Forward, Wilkinson and Munro are employed to help out and expand the business. Cameron is delivering about 8 to 10 pounds of weed to his buyer in Mo- at Port Macquarie each trip. Zanka and Munro start to get on each other's nerves, which escalates into a full-on blue in the growing sheds one day. Cameron tells Holder to get Munro away from the site and pay him to shut the fuck up money. Cameron, Ford and Zanka discuss the Munro issue and decides he needs to be killed to shut him up properly to protect the operation. They dig a grave, then on Munro's return to work, they kill him and bury him in the pre-prepared grave. Okay. So, Munro was a bit of a dickhead, but he did have family and a girlfriend. It was his girlfriend that reported him missing, and he made the Rouse Hill Courier News. They reported, Police have appealed for help in finding vineyard resident Jacob Munro, who was last seen in Colleton on July 22nd. Mr Munro, 24, was last seen in Carpenter Street, Colleton, about 8pm on that date. Police said he was returning to his home in Commercial Road Vineyard that night. However, although his car was found at his home, Mr Munro has not spoken to anyone since July 22nd. Alright, problem solved? Nah. Just a few days later, police start surveillance on the Schofields' property. I can't find out what has tipped them off to begin their surveillance, but they start watching the place. On the 27th of July, just five days after Munro was murdered, drug squad officers make a move. The Blacktown Sun reports, Police seize cannabis worth more than $3 million and charge three men after a drug raid in Schofields on Sunday. Shortly before 3pm, drug squad officers had stopped three cars in Meadow Road and spoke to three men driving them. 
Afterwards, they searched a nearby property where they allegedly discovered a large indoor hydroponic plantation with more than 600 cannabis plants and about 10 kilograms of harvested material. Police took three men to Quakers Hill Police Station and charged them with cultivation of commercial quantities of cannabis. Two of the men, 62 of Quakers Hill and 52 of Marylands, appear in Penrith local court on September 26. The third man, 67 of Marylands, appears in Blacktown local court on August 19. Police dismantled the cannabis plantation in Schofields and seized the equipment for use as evidence. So, that's Cameron, Holder and Wilkinson arrested for growing pot. Wow. There's no mention of Munro or the fact that he was missing. The cops don't know. They only know about the marijuana operation. Now, this is where things get interesting. Forward and Zanka are unknown to the police at this stage. Holder and Wilkinson get bail and are released. With Cameron still in custody, he must be thinking what a lot of crims think. The first one to spill their guts to the cops will get the best deal. The police still have no idea about the connection of Munro's disappearance and the arrests over the pot-growing operation. Until, and this is taken directly from the court record. On the 17th of December 2014, Cameron took part in a record of interview with homicide detectives over one and a half hours. In this, he described the stabbing of Munro by forward as having taken place spontaneously and from his point of view, unexpectedly, on the morning of the 22nd of July 2014. He volunteered that he had used the taser, but it said this had been to subdue Munro in circumstances where he thought Munro was wielding the knife. He did not inform police that a grave for Munro had been dug over a week earlier. He admitted that he and Wilkinson drove the body to the burial site near Bulladeela and that Forward and Zanka had also attended. However, he suggested that the selection of the site was made only after the killing had occurred without pre-planning. We know that's bullshit, but I'll go on. On the 19th of December 2014, Cameron voluntarily attended the burial site with homicide detectives and participated in a walkthrough. He identified the area where he, Forward, Zanka and Wilkinson had buried Munro's body. He directed police to an area about 500 metres to the south where the plastic sheet in which Munro's body had been wrapped and clothing worn by Forward during the homicide were burned. It was during this walkthrough that he first informed police that the grave had been dug days prior to the killing. So, New South Wales Police Forensic Service officers 
exhumed the remains of Munro from the grave. Post-mortem examination showed that he'd been stabbed 15 times to the face, neck, back and chest. One stab wound had penetrated Munro's heart. On the 29th of January 2015, Cameron made a statement to police in which he retracted the bullshit in his record of interview. His account in this statement included the planning in advance that had been undertaken between himself, Ford and Zanka, the selection of the burial site and the preparation of the grave more than a week before Munro was stabbed to death. Now, police go and arrest Forward and Zanka, plus pick up Wilkinson and Holder as well, who are on bail. Eventually, Stanley Robert Forward and Donald John Cameron will be charged and found guilty of murder and the cultivation of 664 cannabis plants. David Ian Wilkinson was convicted of the cultivation of the cannabis and being an accessory after the fact for murder. Zanka would be charged with murder, and after pleading not guilty, the jury was not able to reach a unanimous or majority verdict. He would, however, get a couple of years for his part in the cultivation of the cannabis crop in a separate trial. Holder, who knew nothing at all about the murder or planned to murder Munro, was charged and found guilty of the cultivation of the cannabis crop. Now, here's an interesting bit. Wilkinson, fearing that he may himself be murdered at some stage, wrote two letters and hid them in his room to be found in case something happened. One was addressed to the missing person squad and the other to Holder. It detailed what happened to Munro and how they disposed of his body. This did assist him in in avoiding the murder charges as the letters were written on the 12th of January 2015. This backed up a conversation Wilkinson had with Cameron's wife at Casino on the 13th of January 2015. This conversation took place before his arrest on the charge of being an accessory to the murder and was detected by a listening device under warrant. So he was smart to try and protect himself for something he really didn't want to be part of. He just wanted to grow a bit of dope, smoke a bit of dope, and that was all. Okay, so let me just go over a few things now. The raid on the operation was only five days after Munro was murdered on site. Imagine if the raid happened just five days earlier. The raid wasn't based on Munro going missing, and five days isn't much in a drug raid operation that had probably been going on for weeks, if not longer. Cameron and Holder built this operation, but then had to hire randoms to help out. This was always doomed to fail, 
as the more people that were involved, the greater the chance of someone opening their mouth. When Zanka and Munro had the fight, there was an increased chance of the operation being found out, especially if they sacked Munro. At this point, rather than murder Munro, I reckon they should have just dismantled the whole operation and moved it elsewhere. Just shut it down. I suppose at the time they were making plenty of money and it seemed too much to shut down over a fight between the staff. But when you look back on it, they could still be in business and not in jail if they'd just done that. Cameron had so many previous convictions for growing weed that he must have always been on the police radar for going back into the business. People talk, and I'm sure someone said something for them to go and have a look at the property. I don't think the operation would have been detected by the electricity supplier or the water board, as it was a rural property rather than a suburban home. However, if you were to find that a previously convicted cannabis cultivator was renting a huge place in the bush, maybe you would have some extra sort of interest in it if you were a cop. So all round there were bad decisions, all over a bit of pot. So, what did Jacob Munro's mum have to say? Well, Munro's mum is heartbroken by the news. For over five months, she held out hope that her son Jacob had just gone away for a while and he would be in touch any day. Police only told her six weeks after exhuming the body that he was in the morgue. She was devastated to learn he'd been buried in a lonely bush grave all this time. Just before he went missing, Jacob Munro had told his mum he hated the thought of being buried. So when Jacob's mum eventually found out what had happened to her son, her, in her words, world stopped. It was devastating to find out he'd been buried for months, but more so because of the conversation we conversations we had earlier about him hating the thought of being buried. I didn't know such a dark place existed in my soul. I was going to drive straight into a tree as I thought it's over now. The courts can deal with it because I can't any longer. It had become unbearable to think how my boy had been surrounded by hate as his life was being taken from him in such a malicious calculated way. My heart is broken. At times times it physically aches. On the day of his murder, his sister, who was pregnant at the time, sent him a picture of her ultrasound. She said, we will never know if he ever received it. We moved out of the home we owned and eventually sold it as it had become a place of sadness to us all. Well, true crime islanders, that was a bit of a different story. I guess we put this down to greed and stupidity again. What do you reckon? 
leave your comments on the True Crime Island Facebook page or Twitter. You can search for the Facebook page. Uh, Just type in True Crime Island, of course, and you can join the closed group. Twitter and Instagram is at True Crime Island. Rate and review on iTunes to help us get up the charts, and all the links are on the website, www.truecrimeisland.com. And uh, there's links there to merchandise where you can wear your support of the island or drink from the mug, the mug of rage. I still have koozies and stickers, so email me at cambo at truecrimeisland.com or message me on Facebook or Twitter if you're interested. There's also a link to Patreon, uh, so or you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash true crime island and you can support the island for as little as a dollar per month for weekly commercial free shows you can also do a one-off donation to paypal with my account cambo at truecrimeisland.com which of course is also my email if you want to contact me that way so Let's shout out to the latest Patreon supporters of the island. Thanks to Mi Corazon Mi Amor, Angela Santos, Dale Pennyquick, Cass King. Thank you all for your pledge to the island. Kevin May, Valerie Castro and Rebecca Davis. They also up their respective pledges, so thank you very much. There's Rebecca Jones, Kelly Page, Lorena Dowling, Shannon Rowland, Jill C and Amy M. All have made pledges to the island. This is so much appreciated and I should be able to replace the dead PC soon enough. There's plenty of ways to support the island though. Please share with friends or family and show what a fantastic place the world of podcasts is. One thing for sure, I will keep the island commercial free for all other than running promos for other podcasts or maybe mentioning my favourite beer, which is Beer Chang. Okay, this is your host Cambo and you've been listening to True Crime Island. Don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night.